Welcome to the ED Jam. senior um, ED, AT on overnight um, and really senior nursing staff overnight. So we were just so lucky. And we just heard this screaming coming from the front of the ED unit and this buzzer going off. And, um, you know, I think, you know, at night, uh, we're a relatively sort of medium sized unit, um, only four doctors on overnight. So hear a buzzer, you go to help out. And I just hear whispers of a lady's having a baby. We want to be expecting the unexpected as well as emergency people. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the emergency department is so excellent at you know, traumas, resources, anything that walks through the door. But I think as soon as there's something that actually has this semblance of normality, something that happens every day, multiple times a day, we just sort of panic because yeah. you know, in a lot of ways, it's not a sickness. It's something right. that's going to happen whether we're there or not. And so trying to be as supportive and um, safe as possible, is, I think is awesome. What up, EDGM frothers? Welcome back to another episode of the EDGM podcast. It's Benny here. We're going to be chatting to Dr. Beck today about delivery in the emergency department. Now, we know that midwives uh, and doctors deliver babies, you know, day in and day out in their job and their profession. However, it's really important um, and sometimes we have to deliver babies in our emergency department or if you're a paramedic um, in an ambulance. Now, this is really helpful, um, this episode, because Beck runs us through some of the tips and tricks that she uses when delivering a baby and how to deliver a baby safely um, for both mum and bub. Uh, the episode's really awesome. Beck runs us through the stages of labour, um, how she delivers babies, what equipment she would use, uh, and just her um, her mindset when she is delivering a baby. Uh, it's a really great episode. Um, I really love chatting to her, and I've seen this in practice um, clinically as well. Um, so yeah, let's crack into the episode. You're going to love it. I um, also want to say thank you to everyone who listens to the ED Jam podcast. You can follow me on Instagram at edjam underscore podcast. And you can listen to the podcast on all your streaming services. Once again, thank you to everyone who listens and gives feedback. I really love it. Let's crack in. You. Um, so I'm excited to have you on the podcast. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I'm super keen. It's yeah. a really fun topic, I think, to talk about. It's cool. I love the um, hexagonal glasses. Thank you. I've so got my that. Professor Trelawney on tonight. <laughs> 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 I'm going to get a pair. They're cool. Um, <laughs> I don't know how good that looked, but still. Um, so let's talk, we'll crack into it. But um, why delivery in the ED? Let's start with the first topic. Why are we, you know, let's talk about why the topic. Yeah, so uh, I think that, um, obviously I work in a hospital in Sydney and recently we had a bit of a surprise delivery in the ED. 
um, which was really exciting, I think, for everyone involved. Uh, but there was a lot of flapping, a lot of movement, um, but I think a lot of people not really sure what to do with their hands. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, I think everyone was buzzing the rest of the night. It was great, put a real vibe in the unit, but uh, maybe a couple of things that we could take away and then that way you got a bit of a purpose when a lady comes in having a baby. Awesome. I love um, I love the topic and I love um, the excitement of seeing a baby come into ED. Um, and what is it about delivery that you like? What is it about? Yeah. Yeah, I think the thing that I really like about a delivery is that it's one of the few days in medicine where you're part of the best day of someone's life. Mm-hmm. I think so often we're part of, you know, diagnosing something that's quite you know, painful or distressing to someone. They've broken a leg, they're being diagnosed with cancer, they've got appendicitis. And um, I think it's important. I really enjoy that diagnostic side of medicine and that treatment side of medicine. But when you have someone who's having a baby, um, they're going through a process where you're in a lot of ways very supportive and they're not sick a lot of the time. Um, Sometimes, you know, in obstetrics, things can happen, but you're just, uh, it's a different way of looking at patient care and patient-centered care and I just enjoy that side of it plus if you're there catching a baby you're the first person to touch a human being and it's magic I can know I sound really gushy in my prop tree Lonnie I've got my glasses on (laughs) Um, I just think it's, it's honestly awesome and throughout my career in medicine like I've tried to get away from ONG and I just find I always come back to it and that's the reason why I think I've always loved women's health. Um, I think from a, ever since I was a medical student, I was always really involved in my global health groups and we used to pack like the birthing kits that would be sent across, you know, dropped into Africa and was always a path I knew I would eventually take. Mm. Um, and so I was sort of really excited to be able to gain those skills along the way. Mm. Cool. That's awesome. Have you done any time anywhere else with medicine in terms of being elsewhere outside of Australia? Uh, I spent a bit of time in Cambodia. Wow. Um, but I was mostly as uh, a medical student. And I think most medical students have the opportunity for that experience. Yep. Um, I really wanted, if I was ever to go overseas with an obstetric skill, to be able to leave a legacy behind me. Um, and I'm doing a Master's of Global Health at the moment because you know, I was one of those people I go into medicine. I'm, I'm going to medicine some frontier. I'm going to yeah. come across the sea and <laughs> save some lives and deliver babies. And, and I think the more you learn about that stuff is you have to sort of take a, a step back as someone from a very developed country and sort of say, you can often do more harm than good. Oh. And so just, I wanted to understand that process, be upskilled, go into a space where you can teach um, that community in a sustainable way and then exit having left something valuable behind. So I haven't done a lot of work overseas as a doctor purely because I didn't think that I was ready to leave that legacy yet. Yeah, that's really, that's actually powerful for anyone listening. Um, I've been over to Africa three times and just, yeah, thought I was going to save the world in, in, um, in Rwanda and my sister in Malawi. And you so often realise that sustainability is the key. Yeah. not coming in for a stint and leaving it's leaving something that's actually going to stand when you leave yeah exactly mm. and that's so important I think you know the nice thing about when I went over to Cambodia as a medical student is we went into this sort of grassroots Cambodian um, 
charity and was run by Cambodian people and they basically got you in and sort of said like this is what we need so we need people to do our paperwork we need people to teach us how to do CPR we need people to write manuals on this and that's what we did um and they're amazing now they have these four-year programs they go into a village set everyone up get small businesses going and then leave and just thrive it's fantastic I've written a question here about why is it so important for emergency departments to be prepared for the unexpected delivery? Um, I think really important to know how to be safe for both mum and baby in that scenario. Um, And also because things aren't always peachy in deliveries. There are a couple of really common complications that I think as emergency doctors and nurses, we should be relatively comfortable or at least have a direction of how to manage those things. Um, because you have to cut like two people to think about in that scenario. And it just, um, I think, needs to be something that isn't so siloed away on level three of the birth unit that would be <laughs> helpful in that scenario. That's true, isn't it? Like, oh, I, I remember my first time, I think, at triage and a lady had come in and um, I was so scared. I was like, oh, I don't know what to do. Help me. I think I just said help. And they are screaming and like everyone immediately I think even in the case where this lady came in she was you know pushing and yeah. it's a big moment for mum and she said yeah. she will be screaming and when people scream up like you just are standing yeah. at the end of the bed being like, how do I make it stop and I'm on edge and they're on edge and we're all running around so <laughs> so true taking a breath yeah. and having a couple of steps where you're like okay these are the things that I need to do I think is oh. useful yeah. I love it. That's really good. Where have you trained and what motivates you to do what you're doing? So I guess at the moment, what's your plan with like obstetrics and training? I just yeah, like, right. so doing? yeah. I'm a, I'm a PGY seven. So I've been out of uni for a while. Um, and it took me a little while to find my direction. That's my called mind. experience. Yes. Yes. Experience. <laughs> I call it flip flopping. <laughs> Um, I think my biggest issue was that I just really enjoyed everything that I was doing. And so I got to the, I trained in the country. I was a medical student out in the country and I just adored it. I loved country medicine. I loved the community. I loved how there was this challenge of resources and um, the people. I just thought it was a wonderful place to study and live and work. And so after I was a medical student, I went and JMO'd out in the country. Wow. as well um where similarly I think at the end of my residency year I narrowed it down to ONG physician training or ICU so <laughs> nothing nothing I was gonna say <laughs> we'll stuck yeah I know it was properly stuck <laughs> um and that's when I made the move into sort of one of the major cities to um do a bit of ONG training um and I loved it the lifestyle was horrible has mm. been through an ONG sort of said I think I put on like 15 kilos and I was like well this is not sustainable because of stress or because of the work life's dull balance a bit of both I yeah. have to say um I think you know particularly going into that sort of specialty do you feel the gravity of someone's you know little bundle of joy and it's quite a high anxiety specialty for the women okay yep I think it's nerve-wracking being pregnant. It's nerve-wracking going through labour. It's all a lot of unknowns a lot of the time. Um, and so you sort of take that on a little bit, which yeah. I enjoyed being part of that process, but I feel like I 
also enjoyed eating entire pizzas and that was <laughs> <Don't roll. laughs> yeah. well you'd like do like your you know 7 30 a.m till what 9 10 p.m night come home and be like i'm really eating today so i deserve this yes <laughs> my uber eats doesn't lie i'll just say that <laughs> oh my god it's terrible right <laughs> Oh, um, so yeah, so I did a bit of that and then sort of I thought I'd branch out into other things. So I, I did my ICU. I did a bit of med regging, um, particularly in the start of the pandemic. And then I sort of turned my, uh, I guess, my scope back to women's health. And I was a sexual health reg for six months, which was really cool. And then I thought you've got to decide on something. Uh, and when I figured that I couldn't decide on anything and I loved everything, the general practice made a lot of sense to me. Yep. So I um, went back and I'm just about to finish my advanced transcog, which is an advanced diploma in obstetrics and gynecology. So as part of that, I have to have been signed off to do cesarean sections, instrumental deliveries. Um, I had to have a certain amount of normal deliveries um, to do like gynecological procedures. Yep. Uh, lots of clinics so I've done all of those things I just have one one more exam in December and then I'm done but I just passed my first one and um started by GP training but they said because you're a flip-flopper you have to go back and get ED and pediatric time self in ED this year which has been fantastic I've really enjoyed everything um so I thought yeah GP um obstetrician was where it was at so I got to have my pie and eat it too and my, I guess my interest has always been in things that people usually shy a bit away from. So when I'm in sexual health or obstetrics and gynecology, I also work um, casually part-time for the sexual assault service um, oh, wow. in the city as well. So I'm doing that, you know, two weekends in a month. And it's so useful because these are the things that people find it really hard to talk about. Yeah. And if we really immerse ourselves in those specialties, it stops becoming so taboo and we can just yeah. approach our patients really openly and I think they will appreciate that. Fire up legends. I think this stuff is absolutely epic. And I think as clinicians, um, patients put their trust in us to be respectful, to be non-judgmental and to be um, professional all the time. I think that we need to ensure that we have that therapeutic relationship with our patients. I think it's really important that we give our patients time, that we give our patients um, body language that's positive, that shows that we're listening, but also a non-judgmental approach so that they can open up. More than likely, we're using this information not to tell our friends about it, to laugh about it. We're using this information so that we can gain a bit more of a clinical picture of our patient, um, so that we can think about, is there been any trauma? Or a um, good example, has there been you know, an overdose of drugs? And do we need to know how much they've had? So it's really important that our patient can feel or the person um, specifically can feel open enough with us to communicate that and to feel like we're not going to judge them irrespective of what they think. Um, and I love when we can have those interactions with patients and they can feel comfortable and they can let their guard down. So I guess my question to you for people listening is, do you build that with your patients? Do you let do you break down those barriers so your patient can be more open, um, so your patient doesn't feel judged or that you're going to laugh or talk about them, that your patient feels comfortable so they can open up uh, and that's that therapeutic relationship. But I still feel like there's um, still gaps in, in sort of systems, which is important to have people in it that actually really love it, you know? 
Yeah, no, for sure. And yep. I think there's a hesitancy sometimes to do the, particularly the examinations that we need to do, like speculums yep. and things, but they can genuinely be life-saving. Yeah. Someone's come in with a, a miscarriage and they've got a piece of, you know, that miscarriage stuck in their placenta, uh, in their cervix, sorry, and you can go into cervical shock. And I've seen that happen before where someone has had a blood pressure of systolic of 70 and she's just sitting there and everyone's sort of pumping her full fluid. No one's done a speculum to mm. get that piece of placenta out. You know, it can be, so yeah. we need to be comfortable with women's health and comfortable with those exams because we are health professionals that should, particularly in ED, be able to do these things. Yes, correct. And there's always avenues in explaining them to the patient, but majority of the time the patient is at our mercy and they, a lot of the time, respect what we do and, you know, want the best for themselves. We just got to exactly, yeah. And help. sometimes they're surprised that you don't want to look. Yeah, that's interesting. Oh, like, like no one, no one's asked to look or no one's asked that. But like people come to us and they, I think there's that expectation of touch and yeah. examination when they see a health professional. Yep. Um, and so managing that expectation too. All right, Beck, let's hit it off. So how does Beck approach delivery? Talk me through it, Beck. I'm, oh, in, I'm at your mercy. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the first thing that I was um, thinking about talking in this sort of scenario is that it's important to know that there are about four stages of labour. Okay. Um, and the you'll often hear ladies going about how oh, I was in labour for, you know, 36 hours, hmm. which seems like a really long time. You have these sort of first stage of labour, which is, where someone is having contractions. So they're starting to have regular contractions. Um, they might have broken their waters or, you know, ruptured their membranes. Um, and it's painful, it's uncomfortable, and that can go anywhere um, from a couple of hours to sort of longer than a day. The reason for that is we term that first stage of labour into like a latent or an early phase and sort of like a, a later phase of that first um, phase of labor. And to be in an active labor, you need to be four centimeters dilated, having regular painful contractions. Problem is particularly if it's your first baby, it can take a really long time to get to four centimeters. Yeah. So that's when you hear these stories like, oh, I've known it for days. Like, I know, but that uterus just often needs a bit of practice. Yeah. So that's the first stage of labor. Contractions, often what we associate with um, a labor picture. The second stage of labor is when the woman is fully dilated and that baby is coming down and she started to basically push Bobby out. So, first stage contraction, second page, uh, second stage pushing. Now, the third stage of labor is when Bobby's out and we're delivering the placenta. And the fourth stage is the first six hours after birth where we just make sure that Bobby's okay, mum's okay. Um, and in that stage, a lot of those sort of postpartum hemorrhage complications can happen. So we're just keeping a really close eye on mum um, for that. Um, I think that my approach to delivery specifically for an ED is that often these ladies will come in in second stage. They're coming to us because they are not making it anywhere else. Um, and the, re the ways that you can sort of tell that someone's in second stage of labour and sort of diagnosing that is often the woman won't want to sit down. So if you can think of having, you know, something the size of a baby's head, which is about 10 centimetres, 
in between your legs. You don't want to sit on it. Hell no. <laughs> no. And I think uh, with a lady who came in um, the other night that I'm thinking of in the ED, she, everyone's like, you know, trying to get this woman, she sort of came in very distressed. Everyone was trying to get her to sit down in a wheelchair. And she's like, I'm not doing that. And ended up sort of on her knees yeah. and we just sort of wheeled her around. And I think that's a, a good clue. Um, the next clue is that you can sometimes hear ladies involuntary pushing and, it, you know, it sort of sounds like you would expect it to, like, <laughs> like that sort of bearing down. And it's because of this overwhelming urge that their body is telling them to push. Uh, another clue is that you just have a bit of a look and often you can see the lips of the, the vulva parting and maybe you might see even a little bit of hair coming out so then you know that bubby's coming soon um so if this woman comes in she's kneeling on a wheelchair um <laughs> my approach is to get her somewhere safe as as quickly as you possibly can yeah. um and then i think like i was saying before just take a breath like this is something that's going to happen with or without you a mm. lot of the time at this point and so we just want to make sure that there's something safe for mom, safe for Bobby, that's gonna be happening around her. Um, so getting into usually the easiest place is like a recess bay um, and making sure that if she wants to kneel on the bed or be on the bed, that's okay. If she wants to stay in the wheelchair, that's okay as well. And getting some really basic things going. So the things that you don't need much, um, clean gauze, like quite big gauzes or towels, couple of them get them going and then just pop them underneath mum so that you can have something there that's not the floor to sort of you know catch fluids and blood and baby potentially yeah. um if you can get sterile gloves on do that but otherwise just normal gloves are totally fine um and an ultrasound because there's always two people that you have to worry about with labor and birth and that's mum and bub um, I'm not sure if anyone could locate a CTG machine or a fetal Doppler in an emergency situation. So just skip it and go for the ultrasound because most people in ED know how to use one of those and pop it on mum's belly and try and find a fetal heart. It's really easy to see. Looks like a little heart. Yeah. <laughs> it also gives you a bit of a, yeah, just, just a tiny one. It's yeah. like a little so safe spot lots of gauze pop some gloves on find the fetal heart and if you can get some IV access into mum do that biggest that you can fit in 18 gauge used to be the minimum when I was on the labor ward um anywhere usually hands are okay to do um and then call for help because Usually upstairs in the labor ward or if you're in an ED where there is a labor ward, they've got a little special backpack that they have for ladies having babies in car parks and EDs that they'll just grab with all of the medications and things that you need. Um, and then you have that sort of specialty help on their way. Um, I guess once you've done all that or if you have time to do all that, the next thing is just to, I guess, control the situation a bit and if mum's pushing, allow her to push. Just say, yep, you got it. And the main thing about birth is it's actually a lot slower than you think it's going to be. Um, if mum sort of 
pushes really hard and baby comes all out at once, that's okay. But she's at a bit of an increased risk of having some tears if Bubby just sort of comes out. So saying, yep, breathe, just push little bits, little bits, and then sort of allowing that head to um, deliver slowly is totally okay. Um, I think we often have this thing, it's like, oh, she's coming in, we've got to get the baby out really quickly. But um, if you've got a fetal heart, if you're in a safe and dry space, you have time. Um, and once that baby sort of comes out, it will do something called restituting, where it, because a bubby very rarely will come out, sort of head out, and then all of the shoulders, because of the way that the pelvic rim is sort of placed the baby's head will come out and then it has to either turn left or right and hands off you just see which direction that bubby wants to come um, after that head's delivered and it takes a little bit of time to move just very gently you can then place your hands just on either side of baby's heads i often put my like one hand over the ear and the other hand under the ear and then you want to help mum, you're just guiding. You're not pulling, you're just guiding. It's really important not to pull on a baby, um, particularly because you can get sort of nerve damage in their neck and things like that if you're trying to pull bub out when they're not ready. The way that you're guiding is to get their top shoulder from underneath their pubic, that mum's pubic synthesis. So if you've got bub's head, you sort of want to actually pull towards mum's bottom mm -hmm. until you see a shoulder come out. And then you want to pull towards the front of mum's body or pull as a sort of guide towards the front of mum's body so that the rest of the bub is then delivered. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, so head comes out. Just if you want to touch something and you feel like you have to touch something, just touch the very top of Bub's head and just guide. You don't want it shooting out because then the vulva sort of splits. You're not pushing it back in. You're just sort of guiding it out. And then hands off. Bubby will turn towards mum's bum until you see that top shoulder, then towards mum's front very gently as she's sort of pushing and just guiding Bubby out. And then you have a baby. Ding! <laughs> now during that process we can talk about some things that is there any time where you'd be like oh i'm a little bit worried that or a time frame where you might be like oh i'm kind of not getting the shoulders out or i'm kind of like the head's there but it's still not moving out yeah, yeah. so one of the i guess major obstetric um emergencies is something called a shoulder dystocia um yeah. which i think is sort of something you always worry about uh, there are a couple of risk factors for that, um, and that can be a big baby, um, sometimes a really slow delivery or an instrumental delivery can predispose to those sorts of things, or if bub has some sort of um, congenital issue uh, where they might have a, you know, an issue in their head or neck that could be causing that issue or type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes in mom where bubbles get really chubby around their tummies, um, that can also be an issue. So there are a couple of things to look out for in that sort of situation. And it's called, um, the first sign you might see is that the head takes a really long time to deliver. And yeah. you might even think 
oh, it's coming out. And you're like, when's, where's the chin? Like yeah. it often has this sort of really elongated head because it's been trying so hard to get through that pelvis because Bub's so big. Yeah. So first hint is like, okay, that's the head's taking a bit of time. The second thing you might find is that it's called a turtling sign mm. where Bub's head comes out, but then very quickly it almost is sucked back into the perineum and yeah. the baby's chin sort of yeah. gets squished up against it because the head has been delivered, but that top shoulder is still being held up because of the size of the baby. Okay. Um, now, shoulders, they happen, I think, I think the, the, it's about 1% to 3% of the time. So it's not uncommon um, to happen. And most of the time, unfortunately, we don't know if it's going to happen or not. Yeah, okay. Um, so watch for that slow delivery. Watch for that turtle sign. Um, and if you're thinking, I'm a bit worried here, this baby looks really big, ask mum to get onto her back and you can do a maneuver called McRoberts where you pop mum's legs straight back up and she's basically got we say knees to nipples yep so that whole process is trying to open up the pelvis so that that top shoulder can get underneath that um, pubic symphysis and come yeah most of the time that's enough okay wow okay yeah and and you'll see that it will sort of shift Bobby's shot will come down and, and they'll want to come um, if you're worried about our shoulders and you're thinking like, despite mum pushing, the baby's not moving, ask her to stop pushing because while you sort of try and do that manoeuvre, because there's a risk that if she keeps pushing, then that baby's going to get impacted yeah, in okay. there, and then it's a bit trickier to move. Yeah. Hopefully at this stage you've called for help and by that time that head's delivered and that turtling sign is coming, you've got mum in to the knees to nipples position and your midwives and your ONG reg are there. Yep. But if they're not, then the second sort of thing that you can try and do is a bit of super pubic pressure. Okay. So while you've got those legs up, someone's much like that CPR position almost. The idea being that you're just trying to get your hand and push that top shoulder that's up against the mum's um, sort of pubic symphysis forward so that it can slip down and then Bob can come. Okay. In these scenarios, you do put, I suppose, a little bit of extra pressure on that head just yep. to try and get Bobby down, but you're not yanking. No. It's still just a downward pressure to try and move that arm. Yeah. The first move is sort of like a just a push yep. for 30 seconds, and then the next move you sort of try and pulse it a bit. Okay. Try and get that over. Get that moving. Exactly. Um, there are a whole host of other internal manoeuvres um, that you can do, but I think if you've never been no. taught with them, it's probably something you probably just wait for the ONG and midwifery team to come and help out with. And hopefully you big hospitals, you have some sort of um, obstetric emergency code blue or some sort of, um, you know. Exactly, yeah. If someone's coming in and you're a bit worried, just call it. They're happy yeah. to come. 100%. They're always, yeah. Yeah. They always like, yeah. Even they always like to come in and be like, no, oh, everyone's <laughs> acting <please>. like chunks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, oh, thank God you're here. It's a bit like the movie. <laughs> Fix it. <laughs> Help me. Um, that's interesting. I love how you said then 
you know, the head cut in, in normal, de- in normal, in a delivery that is uncomplicated, would you say? Um, I like how you said sort of like, you know, you, you sort of don't, don't pull. I thought that was really awesome. I like how you said, you know, you have time. Um, and I also liked how you sort of said you're guiding um, Bub to, you know, come down that birth, like to sort of come out, you know, the baby wants to sort of come out. It's going to come that way. Yeah. So you're guiding that process, which I think is really important. Yeah, exactly. And I think once Bubby's out too in that third stage, um, everyone sort of goes, oh, and relaxes. But there's so much to do. <laughs> what else are we going to do? Talk me through. Um, so when I was sort of saying before, you just want lots of towels, warm towels, yep. if you can get them, because um, baby's just gone from 37 degrees mum to 14 degree ED. I don't know how. I feel like it's 14 degree in my ED. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably a bit warmer than that anyway. Yeah. Um, so first thing to do, I guess, is just make sure that bub's warm um, and give them, you know, a little bit of a, a rub with that warm towel and sort of just allow them to wake up. Oftentimes in the ED, um, the ladies coming through are in something called a, like a precipitous labour. So they're not expecting to give birth in the ED. Um, so sometimes that labour is actually really quick. And we term a precipitous labour as sort of having contractions and then having a baby within three hours of those contractions coming on, which can be quite quick. Um, in those situations, both mum and Barbara just be like, what happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not uncommon for a baby to come out and just thinking, I'm just going to hang out. I don't really feel like breathing. I'm not sure what happened there. So giving them a little bit of stimulation sort of gently with a, with a warm towel is a really reasonable way. This is a term baby, by the way. Yep. Is a really reasonable way to sort of get them stimulated. Um, and clamping the cord. I think there are a couple of schools of thought about cord clamping. Um, if I was up in a um, birth unit and this was a term lady um, who had a completely normal bub, bub came out, screamed, you just put bub on mum um, and you could wait between one to three minutes for something called delayed cord clamping, which has a lot of really good evidence to suggest that bubby has a higher um, higher blood count, um, there's less chance of them needing sort of NICU um, and they do really well even sort of into, so, you know, a few months down the track. Ooh. I think in the ED situation where you know very little about this woman or her child and there is a chance that with the precipitous labour they come out a little bit shocked. Um, shocked in the way of like, oh, not as yeah. in like shock, shock. or anything. Um, then it would be reasonable to clamp and give bub to the pediatric registrar or to the person who's been assigned care of the infant in that person relatively quickly, um, just to make sure that they're okay, that they're breathing and that they have an assessment going on for them as well. I think at that point in time, the team can sort of split. Mm. Have half the people who are feeling comfortable looking after baby and assessing them um, and half the people looking after mum and assessing for signs of postpartum hemorrhage um, getting her comfortable, you know, delivering the medications that she would need in that sort of um, third stage as well. Mm. I, um, I follow a girl on Instagram and she um, took a photo of a cross-sectional um, picture of, a, of a, um, an umbilical cord. 
Yeah. And it's super awesome to see the vessels of the umbilical cord, which I, I've never actually seen before until I've liked that before. Just yeah. with all the amazing nutrients that, that get delivered from the placenta, you know, to, to the baby. Uh, and I was so shocked just looking at it going, wow. And that was so well-defined and labelled. Um, and I was like, whoa, there is a lot of amazing things that sometimes you just don't realise until you've seen that. Now I've realised, oh, wow, there's so many, you know, yeah it's so important that, exactly. that the cord. Um, yeah. and I guess when you're clamping the cord to always remember two clamps so one for bub one for mum and cut between them because yeah. if you just clamp baby's side and then cut it then mum's gonna hemorrhage out of that cord so just remember two so um, I remember in this case where we had a lady I said oh can we have a clamp? I got headed one. I said, I need another one. We don't have it. That's okay. Find something um, <laughs> because, you know, it's, um, you know, five liters a minute is going through that placenta. Um, yeah. Yep. So we just have to be careful to always be thinking about two, two people. Mm. And I like how you said in a, in, a, in a situation where it's uncomplicated and it's organized, you can, um, and you're not too concerned, you can delay it. But when you need to resource the baby, then, Technically, the baby's attached on a string at this point, and you need to technically be able to move it away to actually get better access to assess, you know, your ABCDs or your, you know, doing your APGAR and the little kid. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think it's, you know, in those situations, it's really good to have those roles delineated too and say to, to someone, right, you're going to look after baby now. Do you feel comfortable doing that? Check their tone, check their heart rate. Are they breathing? And you can follow that sort of neonatal resource guideline if, if you're needing to, um, just to make sure that they're okay. But then I think it's really common for them to be like, oh, baby, and everyone just sort of plods away. But you've got to remember, mum's still there, often with a bum in the air, um, and she just needs some attention too. Yep. Um, interesting. And once Bub's delivered, um, we'll talk, yeah, sorry, that was just important. Um, once Bub's delivered, do you, do you find yourself more drawn to mum or Bub? In yourself, in your personally, yeah, mom. yeah, cool, yeah. yeah that's always been my experience. Um, yeah, I feel like uh, sometimes they would be like, "Oh, we need some help with the Nina resource," and I would be like, "Yes," and I would go over gratefully as people would come running from behind me. To yeah. <laughs> so obviously, we have to be trained in Nina resource, um, but the midwives are always so amazing. They're great. And, um, yeah fantastic so they're all over that um, so I, I find them really I always love I'll happily look after mom and feel more comfortable doing that <laughs> no I just love when people like feel drawn to certain things you know I'm, I'm a bit of a baby lover so I always get drawn to little babies because I just I don't know <laughs> I think about it I love I don't know it's just interesting um and also the process is not finished um in terms of delivery um let's talk about mum what types of things once the baby has been delivered and let's say you've got a team assigned to looking after bub, what sort of things are left for mum to sort of, or for you as a clinician to think about? Yeah. So I guess we've still got the, the third and the fourth stage of labor to think about. So um, not only is mum delivered a baby, but she also has to deliver a placenta. Um, so the way that uh, we commonly manage that in Australia is something called an active third stage. So often we would give 10 units of um, a hormone called oxytocin, uh, which is delivered IM, often just into the thigh. 
um, if you've got it available and Bubby's coming and you're delivering the body, you can give it actually at that time. Uh, I think often in an ED situation, we're looking for that medication, trying to find it. Um, so after Bubby's out, delivering that, so just into the enterolateral thigh, 10 units of iron oxytocin, that um, will help deliver the placenta and reduces the risk of a postpartum hemorrhage for her. Um, if you haven't at that stage, often getting a line in, taking a full blood count, a group and hold, just as a routine thing, I think is a really worthwhile thing to do. Um, and keeping an eye on blood loss vaginally for the mum. Mm. Often the placenta you know, can take anywhere up to about half an hour to be delivered. Um, if it's longer than that, it can be termed sort of a retained placenta. Yeah. Um, if they've been given oxytocin, and that's when we'd need our OMG friends to probably come and assess that. Yeah. Sometimes it's pulled away, it's just not coming through. Sometimes it's stuck for whatever reason and they need to go to theatre for that removal. Yeah. Um, but giving that IM oxytocin is... Um, important to do and often if everything happens normally that's the only medication you might actually need to give um, the third stage is often managed with something called a controlled cord attraction which is when you deliver the placenta very gently with constant pressure um, but I think finding that balance um, between pressure and breaking the cord yes. is sometimes a bit of a, a skill. So mm. if you're not confident or if it's not just coming out, just leave because you do have time yeah. if they're not bleeding a lot. I think from from this podcast we've learned don't pull. <laughs> don't pull. Things will come. <laughs> Most of the time they will come. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, and then you said, oh, sorry, I'm hemorrhaging, looking out for hemorrhaging. What, what, when would Beck get concerned with a postpartum hemorrhaging or with, um, you know, in that third stage or even that fourth stage, when would you get concerned about blood loss? Yeah. So say, you know, you've delivered baby and the placenta's quickly followed. Um, I think soon after that, the bleeding should be relatively settled. Like um, I think a really good thing to know as ED clinicians is a fundal rub uh, which is where you sort of basically get your hand and massage the top of a uterus without a baby in it yeah. um, to sort of create tone the reason for that is because uh, postpartum hemorrhage is one of the most common causes of maternal morbidity um, and often it's tone uh, which is when the uterus relaxes um, and if you're thinking about a placenta um, and a uterus, if that placenta has come out, there's still a placental bed on the top of the uterus or wherever it's been. And that is full of these sort of basically open vessels. When a uterus contracts, it cinches those vessels closed. And that's why not everyone has a hemorrhage after they have mm. a baby, because that uterus is nice and firm and stops all of that bleeding basically from happening. Um, so if it relaxes, it often looks like this constant sort of trickle or stream mm -hmm. of bleeding, and that really shouldn't be happening if the placenta is out. Um, so the, when I would get worried is 
um, sort of if I'm, because you'll often find midwives will come and just sort of peek underneath the, the sheets. Yeah. Um, so it's normal to have, I guess, what would look like a bit of a period. Yeah. That's okay. But if you're noticing that there's like, you can see a trickle of blood, that's probably too much. Okay. Now, a postpartum hemorrhage is defined usually as a 500 mil blood loss or more um, after childbirth. Yeah. Um, we are notoriously bad, whether you work in, you know, labor ward, whether you work in an ED, of quantifying blood loss. Oh, 100%. It often looks more dramatic than it is or looks all right and you weigh it and you think, ah, crap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think if you're ever worried, it, no one would fault you from just starting the process of managing a, a postpartum hemorrhage. Um, but, yeah, look for that trickle. Feel the fundus. It should, it feels like a soccer ball, like a little kid-sized soccer ball. It's hard. It should feel like a fist underneath you. And if it doesn't, then you got some clues. Okay. Um, a postpartum hemorrhage, they say that it's the four T's, reason that it um, is caused. One of those is tone, which is where that muscle relaxes. Um, one of them is trauma. So it's quite common to have tears um, in childbirth. And they can be anywhere along that vaginal cervical tract. So you can get a cervical tear, a tear in the vaginal wall itself, a tear in the perineum, um, all those places, particularly if they hit quite a large vessel, it's such a vascular area, can cause a lot of bleeding. Um, could be a lady who's on Clexane, or you know, maybe she's got a mechanical heart valve, or she's had a history of DVTs, so maybe her blood's already thin or She's got some other sort of genetic um, you know, thrombophilia, for example. Yeah. Um, and the last is septone, thrombin, trauma, tissue. Oh, yeah. The last one is if you have like a piece of the placenta that's still left inside. Um, the tricky part, mm. if you start to see that little gush of blood and the placenta's still in there, that's when you think, oh, I need mm. some. Yeah. But sometimes you might deliver the placenta and it's just could only be a couple of centimeters that's just stuck there okay. but because it has allowed those vessels to remain open the bleeding will continue do you, do you check the placenta just to make sure that it's intact when it's been delivered just to like look at it and examine it and sort of go oh it you know for your notes that it's intact and exactly yeah um and the way that you do that is to sort of like lay it out flat like a pancake mm -hmm. You'll find two sort of layers of membranes. Um, one was surrounding bulb, and one that was sort of attached more to the the uterus. And looking at them, and then you look for if there's any like big lobule that's missing, okay. or if those membranes don't quite meet into a nice little circle. You think, oh, is there a piece still inside there? Okay. So yeah, that's a routine sort of part of that sort of fourth stage, looking at things, making sure everything. Yeah, if people have never seen a placenta before, it's pretty crazy. I don't know. I, I was shocked when I first saw one. I was like, what, what is going on? I don't, even working in nursing, I just didn't have that. I don't know. I, I knew it was there, but just... Anything else, does it? You're just like, oh, that's a straight-up organ. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. You go, what? <laughs> For 10 months, we got rid of it. Just crazy. I was like, what is going on? And then as I obviously did more training, I'm like, okay, it's all good. I get it now. But um, yeah. And yeah. they're bigger than you think they'll be. Like, yeah. um, often people are like, oh, you know, placenta. But if you get a kidney dish, it will overflow that kidney dish. Oh, 
Nigel again. There's <laughs> a bit of weight into it as well. I was like, just. Solid couple of kilos. Yeah. yeah, I wasn't expecting. I was like, geez, this is a bit heavier than I thought. <laughs> Naivety of me is always, yeah, it doesn't, never surprises me um, at all. Oh, I mean, it's, it's very much sometimes like a bit of, oh, you know, up there. Up yeah. There. Yeah. So. Keep it upstairs. Um, I liked how you said um, when you mentioned mum, you know, when things can go south or you should be thinking about one of the big things, which is uh, I love those. That was awesome about the, the tease. That's really interesting. I haven't heard it. Um, I've heard that before. Um, but having, you know, having that in the back of your mind that, you know, hemorrhaging is could be a big cause of maternal morbidity. So I need to be thinking about that it could possibly still happen. Um, and it can happen even after you know, as I said before, it can be delayed as well, which is important for us to know as clinicians. Yeah, um, don't just ship them off to the, to the corner. Um, what equipment and drugs, you mentioned your equipment and drugs you need for both complex and non-complex. Um, you've mentioned most of those drugs sort of, I guess, have you ever needed to give blood products before postpartum, partly? Yeah, I have. Um... I think I remember this, actually, this one case that I got called down to. And I think that's, it's sort of the, um, the thing about obstetrics is that things can change really quickly. Mm. Um, so the phone call I got was, hey, I've got a bit of a trickle down here. Lady in room six has just given birth. Um, she might need some stitches. Do you mind coming down? I was upstairs. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm on my way. Not a problem at all. And I mm. arrive and... I think we had a PPH of about 1.5 litres and very quickly this lady had gone from a trickle to a gush um, and, it, you know, we sort of popped that lady up into the stirrups, um, did our ABCs, popped 15 litres of oxygen on her, mm-hmm. got some wide ball access, running some crystalloid through and I'm looking to see where is this bleeding coming from. Mm midwife we're sort of addressing our four t's this whole time so midwife's um on the uterus rubbing up that fundus trying to get tone i'm someone else is um having a look at the placenta is there a piece missing so we've done tone we've done tissue mm. we know that she's not got any anticoagulopathy or coagulopathy or she's not on any anticoagulants mm. so it's not like a thrombin issue and i'm looking for trauma and fortunately, this lady had a bit of a combination of a tone and a tissue, a trauma problem. Mm. So she had a lot of atony. So we're rubbing up the fundus and she had quite a large vaginal wall tear. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, while we were assessing her, unfortunately, she lost consciousness um, and yeah. had a blood pressure of 70. So we pressed the big red button on the wall but while we're waiting for help. Um, someone has, um, she's had a 10 units of oxytocin, but we're also giving other medications to help tighten that tone of the uterus. So because she's not had any issues sort of with high blood pressure in the past, we gave her a medication called Ergometrin, which is a really strong uterotonic. Um, we also hung up um, 40 units of oxytocin in a litre that we're giving sort of through one drip and giving some crystalloid in another, taking VBG, full blood count. She'd luckily already had a group and hold on file, um, but be, and she already had the oxygen on. So we were sort of addressing all those things. Um, and I just started to basically suture. We managed to get her back after oh, yeah. a bolus. I think it was a combination of things. 
Um, but I gave that lady, I ordered two units um, straight away to come up given her acuity sort of syncopal episode. Um, and uh, she ended up needing three units of blood. Oh. What did a hemoglobin get to? Yeah, well, yeah, I was interested. So it actually wasn't too bad because we started yeah. it. Stuff. Um, I think in the acute version, her hemoglobin was about 120 to start with. Yep. And then the next day after the three units, it was 110. Yes, yeah, so after three units. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I think three days later, she was still in the hospital and we did it again. It was about like 90. Yeah. So, without a bit so she certainly needed it oh definitely and that was an uncommon scenario well the most common sort of I guess um transfusion scenarios I've been involved in is a lady who's had quite a large bleed yeah. managed managed with sort of crystalloid um and then you sort of get these hemoglobins that are sort of downtrending and they um I'm constantly amazed at how strong women are oh they will just walk around with hemoglobins of 70 where it was 130 yesterday and feed their baby and go off to NICU and do what they need to do. Um, but actually when you sort of question them a bit further, they are quite symptomatic of that. Yeah. Uh, that's usually we would, you know, transfuse the next day or so if they're sort of got a hemoglobin that's sort of underneath sort of 70 to 80. Yeah. Um, I guess the unique thing you need to think about with transfusing someone who's of a pregnancy age is antibodies. Yeah. So anytime that you introduce a blood product to someone who might potentially have a baby in the future, there's the possibility that they will create antibodies that then could have implications for future pregnancies. So it's not just anti-D, which we've probably heard a lot about, if rhesus negative mums you know the a negative or b negative have a a positive or b positive baby they can create antibodies that then will cross the placenta and cause anemia in baby oh. other antibodies that can cause similar sorts of reactions um and you can get them from blood products holy marriages or other pregnancies yep so you'll often see particularly in maternity that they will tolerate a lower hemoglobin for that reason for that reason and often it's discussed with the woman this is what we worry about you know if you need it you need it absolutely hands down research situation you just use it yeah um and there is some recommendations and sub guidelines that you can get um anti kel like because kel is one of these antibodies that can cause some mischief some blood banks i think in the uk look for that i don't think we do that in australia it can go from uncomplicated to complicated in not long if it really turns south yeah yep. and that, i think i i think i really enjoyed about obstetrics and another reason i'm convinced ong and the midwifery people are adrenaline junkies there's very few things in health that you need to do in like seven minutes mm. the shoulder dissociation is one of them the pbh if you're not onto it like someone can bleed out very quickly um you have to be on and i i find that I just it's so admirable when you see it as well um maybe run me through some stories that, of cases you've been involved in Actually, when even you, run you can even run through the case you had the bub that you said was on the lady was on the wheelchair you yeah what you did the one how, we did together <laughs> how did you approach that and i just hear whispers of a lady's having a baby and i was like yes <laughs> i miss this <laughs> i'm into it <laughs> 
you see um we go outside dad's parked the the car out the front of the ed um and someone's come out with a wheelchair uh and this lady very clearly pregnant um screaming sort of and at that stage in that labor where not a lot of information is forthcoming mm. they're just very much in their zone doing their thing totally respect that so sit in the chair I'm not sitting in the chair sit mm. in the chair I'm not sitting in the chair <laughs> she ended up on her hands um, and knees just sort of over the edge of it that's fine we all sort of run past her into <laughs> recess and I remember a lot of people being there and I'm not really sure we knew what everyone else was doing. <laughs> um, and then uh, we had, uh, I remember this lady sort of had a little peek. Um, she'd managed to get her pants off in the interim, had a little peek, and you can just see hair. Uh, dad's coming in, how many weeks? 40 weeks. Okay, great. So we've got a lady who's at term. Mm. And this baby is coming now. So she's in second stage. I know that because I can hear her involuntary pushing. Mm. I know that because I can see the top of the baby's head. I know that because she doesn't want to sit down and there's a soccer ball between her legs. All those sort of little tricks and tips that we've heard before. Um, we didn't have time to get a fetal heart rate on this one. Um, we sort of said to the lady, just relax. You know, you're okay. Don't, don't push for now if you don't want to. And she sort of very simply informed all of us that she would be pushing. Thank you very much. She That's totally fine. And then Bobby's head delivered. Restituted. So we just sort of watched Bob's head be delivered and then it turned. Um, I popped both my hands. I had a really lovely assistant who has, was hands-on as well. <laughs> um, and we just sort of gently guided with the next push um baby's shoulder out so because she was on her hands and knees mm. um if you've delivered a lot of babies before you often will push or like not push but guide down into the bed but when someone's on their hands and knees it's actually the opposite of what you would usually do so you just have to be really careful that's why i said bum to front and not sort of down to up if that makes sense so guided bub's head to the bum Shoulder came out and then uh, the two of us sort of helped Bobby um, delivered towards mum's front. Um, I think we held on to the baby for about yeah. a minute while someone was finding, <laughs> finding blankets. <coughs> yeah, we had had a blanket. We're just sort of a beautiful baby girl. Yeah, we were just like it's ecstatic. Everyone tried to keep moving the baby up and away and we had to keep moving the baby back down because it's still attached to mum. Um and then so he said, okay, we need to, we need to clamp. Um, unfortunately, we only had one, which is why it's sort of important, I guess, to realize that you do need the two. So we'd clamped one, ended up being a delayed cord clamping out of necessity, I think. Um, so clamped one, clamped two. Bobby went off to the lovely peds registrar who was next to us. Um, and then mom had some oxytocin popped in a bed. Uh, we kept peeking under the covers and then the ONG team arrived and whisked her away and mm. Bobby away. And everyone was fine. Bobby cried, got a bit of a cuddle, and the two of them went up to birth unit afterwards. Yeah. It's a great process. Mm. It was a nice ending. I think the whole unit was buzzing the rest of the night. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's an exciting process, I think. Um, and there's, there's a lot to learn. You know, in any case you do, I think there's so much you can learn, even if it's 
a clamp or even if it's the way you position your hands or if it's what you say or knowing to sometimes be more patient and realise you've got a bit more time or, like you said before, thinking in your head out loud with that approach that you've given about the four stage level and even going, oh, wow, this is, you know, second stage. Oh, I wasn't thinking like that, you know. So I think it's great to sort of give us a bit of meat and it gives us a bit of sort of like, you know, evidence to back up what we do as clinicians. It's always yeah, helpful. For sure. Um, mm. I think as well, some ladies can get really distressed in that first stage of labour. Um, I remember another case that I had where it was at a, a different hospital. Um, I was an ONG reg at the time. I was on nights as well. It's always night. It's always night shift. That's why I say delivering near the, at night time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's daytime everyone comes. <laughs> yeah, they just don't pass go like in the day. They're like, well, I'll have it in the elevator of the ED. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but I was at night and this lady was very, very distressed. We got this call from the triage nurse. There's a lady who's having a baby in the ED. Can you come? So we, we went down and this lady was in recess, very loud, very vocal, seemed to be contracting about four in 10, very distressed, um, normal fetal heart rate. Uh, and a normal fetal heart rate is between about 110 and 160. Um, and we assessed her in the resource bay, because we were looking, there wasn't any parting of the lips of the vulva. She didn't seem to be involuntary pushing. Um, she was a bit distressed, but was able to sort of lie comfortably enough. And we uh, did a vaginal assessment in the ED and she was two centimeters. So sometimes someone looks like they're having a baby and they're not really close. And mm -hmm. so having those little ideas. So we brought up to, the birth unit and gave her a bit of morphine and let her have a bit of a break. Um, and she ended up having a baby, I think, about 24 hours later. And oh, this is this might sound a little bit of a weird question. So, uh, there's a whole bridge delivery in EDs, like, hello, I need anyone here now. I need, you know. Right. And it's a good point, actually. I think breach delivery is one of those things where, because there was this big trial out in 2000 um, called the breach trial, a lot of, um, and that had suggested, and the evidence is a little bit disputed now, but it suggested that a vaginal delivery for breach was actually um, much more dangerous for mum and baby. And so since that time, cesarean section has often been the main delivery model for a breach. So even ONG registrars might not get as much experience from a vaginal breach point of view yes. as they would have maybe 30 years ago. 25% of breaches are diagnosed when you see a bump. So if a breach delivery comes into ED, the biggest thing is just don't touch. Yep. Call your ONG and don't touch anything because often it'll be sort of a no touch approach until you see their belly button. And then you might start to do a few internal maneuvers. Okay. But a lot of the time that um, ONG colleague is going to be your best friend for them. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so just take breath, hold back. If there's a little bum hanging out at you, you can cover it with a bit of a warm sort of gauze if you're wanting to, but otherwise the more you move, if they're not ready to be moved, um, hands go out, heads go back, and that's when they can get themselves into a situation where they can get stuck and the head can get entrapped. Um, so unless you see a belly button, hands off. Yeah, okay, cool, good. Sorry to bring that up. I just thought, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And I have my only experience of a vaginal breach was when I delivered twins. 
Um, when you deliver twins. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and then it's a bit easier because you know that the pelvis is of a size where a baby is going to come through. The cervix is already dilated and it's often a very active process. Um, but I, I think where I was working only, we had maybe two vaginal breaches that year um, and both were surprises. Well. So, and babies do tricky things. They can yeah. flip and turn them. <laughs> yeah, it's not always just simple, is it? Like, it's good to know that, that you, and I, I guess we do that in, in emergency. Yeah, there's always that, like, in this scenario, this could happen. However, you know, the dreaded cricothyroidomy, you know, there's always like a, you know, a thing that's there that could happen that might not happen, but yeah. we should be aware of it. Yeah, I think one of my colleagues actually said to me today, it's my worst case scenario that a breach delivery is going to come through the door. I said, mate, if it's a breach delivery, don't touch. Yeah. Don't touch anything and call yeah. over. Yeah. Um, because there are some serious implications of intervening. Yep. Um, particularly if, you know, we're not sure what we're doing. Mm. Um, oh, we've, man, we've been through heaps. Um, yeah, it's good. Um, is there anything else you want to add? I think you've given heaps. That's so good. I hope this was helpful. That's oh, good. Um, I just bring people on and then I get like really caught up in it. I'm like, no, no, no. good. It's good. There's so much to um to include. Um, if people want resources, where would they go to if they want to learn more about delivering patients, delivering babies, <laughs> um, and looking after um women in relation to, you know, um women centered care. Um, what where what would you recommend? So I think. Yeah. Yeah, the lovely thing about um, ONG is that there is a policy on literally everything. Cool. Um, so often if you just have a look at the policy and procedures of your own network, yep. it will be there. There's a like a postpartum hemorrhage. There'll be, you know, any sort of thing that you could possibly think of. Um, beyond that, RANSCOG and the Royal College of Obstetrician and Gynecology in the UK have, as well as I think Queensland Health, Mm -hmm. really good protocols on normal birth sweet Go through the stages things to think about um, what constitutes a normal birth what you need what you need um, and I I think that they're fantastic when I'm studying for my exams I just go straight to the protocols and that's where you're going to I don't know about you legends but I absolutely love that episode I think there's some awesome take-home points for every clinician um, thank you, Beck, for coming on the podcast. Um, you can check the show notes out um, for any information about delivery. Um, also, thank you um, for listening to the EDGM podcast. You can follow me at EDGM underscore podcast I'm on Instagram. Um, and we've got plenty more episodes um, coming up. Um, so make sure you check us out. Please hit me up a message if you have any questions uh, or you just want to touch base. I love chatting uh, to each and every one of you about your journey um, through emergency or through paramedicine or through medicine um, and I love hearing from students as well so yeah have a great day you the EDGM podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which this recording is occurring today the Darabal people and pay my respects to the elders past present and emerging